Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Roth, but my friends call me the Booby Docs. My popular social media account where I talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and fun way. I'm a board-certified radiologist who specializes in breast imaging and image-guided procedures. I'm also a 40-something Ashkenazi Jewish woman with a strong family history of breast cancer and BRCA, so I know a thing or two about breast cancer. And this is my podcast, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, this podcast is for you. Each episode, I sit down with top breast cancer experts, thrivers, providers, and those that love them to bring you the breast information. So get ready to learn, laugh, and let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please refer to your doctor with any symptoms or concerns you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. This past week was Adolescent and Young Cancer Awareness Week, or AYA Cancer Awareness Week, which shines a light on the multitude of problems that young cancer patients and survivors face. Breast cancer is the most common cancer amongst 25 to 39-year-olds, and young people with breast cancer face a multitude of problems, including infertility. I am so honored to be speaking with two of the founding members of A Damn Good Life, who knew all too well the impact of breast cancer diagnosis at a young age and the impact it could have on infertility. They created A Damn Good Life to make surrogacy a reality for young breast cancer survivors. I am so excited to be welcoming them to the podcast today. Through their incredible organization, they will be granting one lucky young breast cancer survivor a full surrogacy journey. Applications for their first surrogacy grant close tomorrow, April 10th. So let's find them the perfect match. So welcome, Victoria Raphael and Ann Palmer. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Thank you for for taking the time to learn about A Damn Good Life, too, and helping us spread the word. Yes, I love your organization. I love what you guys stand for. Tell me a little bit about each of your breast cancer journeys and then how you came to uh, make a damn good life. Yeah, it feels like it was only yesterday, but it was actually a while ago. Um, I was diagnosed at at 33. I'm 38 now. Um, And it was out of nowhere. I was going through routine checks and um, at my gynecologist and she found it and um, kind of moved very quickly in terms of once you get a diagnosis, having to figure out um, the whole world of oncology and cancer. And um, I mean, I think like for starters, I was going into the gynecologist to find out uh, like, is my body ready to kind of start uh, get, you know, with pregnancy and starting a family. So like my intention was around like actually being pregnant, which is kind of ironic in the end. And then mm-hmm. my cancer, um, which I, I think having an amazing team, I was based in New York. Um, I, I went through Mount Sinai. Um, the team of doctors were incredible. Um, and they like supported right away, like egg preservation, which um, throughout my diagnosis, I was, I had stage 1A. I was triple hormone positive, meaning like my hormones were basically exacerbating my cancer. Um, it was like could spread quickly, but it was still very, very small um, mm-hmm. and treatable, which was, I had like a great, diagnosis and treatment plan, um, although aggressive. And then, you know, the one thing that I didn't realize was that my fertility, um, was going to be compromised. Um, so I was able to, to do a round of, uh, of egg retrieval with my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. And, um, you know, froze, they recommended you freeze embryos. So very quickly 
there and made this decision, like, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket with this guy and we're going to see how this goes. And <laughs> cool. um, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I should have just like a couple on ice just for me, but no, I'm <laughs> it's a lot of, pr- it's a lot of pressure on a couple that's, you know, dating at the time and especially going through breast cancer treatment at the same time. Yeah. So, um, did that. And we were very, very fortunate. I only had to do one round. Um, my doctors had wanted me to start chemo pretty quickly, um, but were supportive if I needed to do another. Um, and froze I think, 13 embryos at the time. And then after we genetically tested them about like a year or and a half after I was done with treatment, um, we've had eight genetically normal. So we're working with um, a great healthy bunch of, of babies on ice. And we were really excited to have the opportunity to, you know, think about starting our family after I was done with treatment and kind of healed from the physical and emotional trauma um, and went through a surrogacy journey uh, through November 20. uh, My son was born November, 2021, but um, Mm -hmm. I guess we started the process probably like in the middle of COVID, um, which is a whole other story is just like making that decision, starting to talk to agencies um, and, yeah, it was, a, it was kind of a wild ride trying to, to think about that in the midst of COVID. But we persevered and, you know, we found an amazing surrogate, Christina, who carried our, our son Ezra. And he was born uh, November of 2021. Um, so very fortunate how it all came full circle. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're actually working on um, potential for our second baby, um, which is actually going to be hopefully carried by my surrogate's twin sister. Um, oh, wow. Kim, so, with twins carrying siblings, which is like a cool story. That is a cool story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have so many questions about what you talked about. So you were diagnosed, your doctor found a lump. So right away, did they take that seriously and start send you for ultrasound and mammogram at that time? Yeah, I know I sped through that quickly because I'm like, oh, I kind of forgot all the details but yeah I mean they found and then I was you know young so she was like oh maybe just like your cycle you have breast cancer in your family but you know let's just see what happens um come back after your period basically I went back like look I must have known in my heart that like something wasn't right because I could have easily like you know not gone or just like put it off for like longer than I did and I was like you know what this I'm gonna fall through with this it's my health like I don't want to like take any chances here and at least see this through. So anyway, went back and she was like, still feel suspicious, like, you know, a couple areas. Um, I'm going to send you in for mammogram, mammogram and ultrasound actually couldn't get in right away. But again, because of this seriousness, I wasn't sure like, you know, how, you know, important time sensitive this is. Um, but then once I got in, I think it was like three weeks or four weeks after that, um, it, it was concerning. So they like put me in biopsy like that same week. Um, and I think like from just the radiation or from the radiology perspective, like, they kind of gave me the, the feeling that like once I was going in and getting the six scans and what they were seeing, like it looked like cancer. So it was kind of like breaking myself for that news. And then of course, like, a couple of days later, um, my gynecologist called and like delivered the news. And then it became this like rat race of like, and I got diagnosed around Thanksgiving of, I think it was like 29, 2019. Um, so it was just like, everyone's out of the office. No one's there for, you know, anyway, it was like crazy, but anyway, it made it, got it happen, made it, made it um, work and we got it um, done. And like, and within two weeks I had chemo scheduled. I had started meds for fertility. It was like, 
the most organized than I've probably ever been in my life. So just like get everything in order. So it's interesting because I'm the radiologist on that aspect. So I'm the doctor who interprets your your mammogram and ultrasound. And certainly when we see a young woman comes in with something very suspicious, our flags are heightened. And, you know, we're trying once you get in, I think that's the hardest part, like you said. So it's really important for women to push for appointments, push, you know, make calls and have your doctor make calls to, you know, if you have something concerning that it be evaluated in a timely fashion. And then again, as a radiologist, you know, if we ever see a young woman with something concerning, we want to expedite that as well. So, you know, expediting the ultrasound and the biopsy and things like that, because that's how we get a diagnosis. But yeah, once we do that, everything kind of happens very fast, like you said, hopefully, as it should. Um, And also, you mentioned, did you have a family history or, and did you ended up having any genetic mutation in the end? So no genetic mutation. Um, I, my, it was, it runs on my mom's side, my maternal side. So my grandmother was diagnosed at 59 and died at 62. Um, but she had very advanced stage cancer. So I would say genetically linked to that, you know, that side of the family, but, um, in terms of being mutation, nothing came back. So Anne, why don't you tell me a little bit about your breast cancer journey? Um, so, I mean, mine started actually when I was an early teen, cause my mom diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, um, when I was young. So that's always been something that's been on my mind. I, um, she had a really tough, um, it was stage four and it was, you know, many years ago. So there's been a lot of advancements and treatment and things like that since then. But, um, she, she battled it for a long time. Um, she at one point went into remission and was on tamoxifen, um, and kind of like Victoria, I, I don't even recall my my journey. It was during COVID. So the, <laughs> the details of my mom are a little fuzzy. Um, but she, you know, went into, she was on tamoxifen, went into remission. It came back, went to her bones. Um, and she ended up dying um, in 2007. Um, so she was sick for almost 10 years and she was really sick most of the time. So that was, you know, part of my you know, upbringing, which, you know, as a young, you know, teenager, female going through that during college and high school and all those things, it was always, um, it was tough, you know, something that kind of sticks with you um, throughout your whole life. So um, given that I started screening um, in my er- mid thirties, mid thirties, uh, and I had dense breast tissue and, you know, all of the things that are kind of make it harder to, to, to see anything. So I had had one scare prior to my diagnosis and it was funny because it was right when COVID happened, I started getting uh, letters from my doctor saying, you need to come in, you need to come in. And I, you know, I'm just thinking this must be a fluke. Like they don't want me to come in. It's COVID. Like <laughs> I feel like I'm, um, I'm healthy. Like why do they keep bothering me? So like after like the first letter, finally I was like, okay, fine. I'll go in. So from there, that was probably about June. And it was strange um, because they kept asking me to come back. So from June to November, I think I had six different tests and they would be like, it's fine, but we just want to do this one thing. And while I'm living in Long Island and going to IU in the city. So it was a whole nother, and it was COVID and I was doing it alone. And it was just, it was very, I like twice, I think I was in the car on the way back here and I like had to turn around and they'd be like, we got you in right now. So like in my mind, like it was very, it was months and months of like, and I actually said to my husband, I was like, 
okay, this is it. I'm going back for this one. And if that is not the case, I'm finding a new doctor because I can't live like this anymore. This is crazy. And of course, that's when they found it. Um, so, you know, in hindsight, right, which is 2020, I'm very grateful for my doctors because they found it super early, um, stage one invasive ductal carcinoma. Um, and so, you know, that was November 18th and they had me in for surgery, like December 20th or 23rd or something, you know, in like a month, which was great. Um, I, you know, I also decided at that point, I never went through genetic testing because my doctors were kind of like, okay, you know, you can look at it two ways. It's like, okay, are you ready at this point to cut off your breasts and your ovaries if you do have the mutation? And I'm like, no, not really. Um, and so I did go through genetic testing after that and I don't have the gene. Um, so, you know, life kind of, <laughs> it's crazy, bad luck or whatever you want to call it. Um, I do have several genes that are kind of un unknown certainty, I think is what they say, um, but nothing has come of that. So after that, I had, so I had a lumpectomy. My course of treatment was supposed to be just a lumpectomy. And then um, because it was so early and it was not in my lymph nodes, um, was going to be about like five weeks of uh, radiation. Um, so at that point, we went on this cross-country road trip because it was COVID. And, you know, my stepson had a month off school. We drove to California, a couple of months off school. Um, so we came back, and I was literally like in the radiation office. And by the way, this is no dig at NYU. I am completely happy with all my doctors and everything they did. It was like a mostly seamless process, but this is actually just kind of a I mean, it's funny now. It wasn't funny at the time. I'm about to like start the radiation, you know, you're in the basement. It's this thing. And um, one of the NPs comes in. I'm like signing all the forms and doing all the thing. And they're like, um, did you know you're supposed to have another surgery? And I was like, what? <laughs> they're like, have you talked to your doctor? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And I just like, you know, like lost it. Um, so it was a surprise. Anyways, ended up going straight upstairs that same day and scheduled my re-excision because my margins weren't clear. Um, and I had a re-excision a couple months later or a month later because my tissue was so dense, there was other spots that they had flagged for follow-up, which, you know, you know, they were doing biopsies still when I'm about to go get a lumpectomy. And I'm like, this is like insane. I'm like, I'm about to to me, why are you still doing biopsies? You know, I think it's just the nature of the disease. I'm sure, as you know, it's like there's so many, you know, wild cards out there. So they ended up um, doing two of the additional spots that were for six month follow up, and all three of those spots um, had DCIS. So, which is stage zero cancer, which eventually is going to be cancer for those of you that don't know that. Um, so we decided to do a, um, a mastectomy at that point, which would have been my third surgery. So, uh, I am very like matter of fact, you know, I did, I got second opinions, quote unquote, just because at this point you're like going into your third surgery and it's like, what the hell is going on? Um, and everyone agreed. It was just, you know, it, my, every story is different and mine, this is the way it ended up. And then I ended up getting two more after that. So I ended up having a total of five surgeries in less than a year. Um, ended up with a double mastectomy two re and then two reconstructions because something happened with my implants as well. But, um, <laughs> I'm, 
I'm like shuddering because your story is so common yeah. where like you go in for a lumpectomy, yeah. you find more disease, you take it out, you know, you need more biopsies. It ends up all being cancer. In the end, you end up with double mastectomy, which is honestly how a lot of this ends up because, right, a lot of things are not caught on mammogram. You have dense tissue, yeah. you get an MRI, which is more sensitive. So we see a lot more things. And I had three of those uh, fine needle guided MRIs, which are like the fourth circle of hell, in my opinion. They're the most painful thing in the world. And with a mask, during COVID, so I had to have a mask on and you can't move and I couldn't breathe. Like in the machine, it was like. <laughs> MRI biopsies are a very unfortunate circumstance to find yourself in. I'm the doctor who does it. I hate doing it. But, you know, it's sometimes you can only see it on MRI and that's why we have to do it. But, you know, I do, I do think that, you know, when you add an MRI, a lot of times we find extra areas that require a biopsy and that does push a lot of people towards mastectomy for good or for bad. Yeah. And like, because of my age, you know, we decided um, that we shouldn't do that right away. You know, I could have, I think if I pushed for it, but you know, it's, hey, do you really want to like, you know, you're 36. Like, do you ready for this? So you mentioned you have a son. Stepson. A stepson. Okay. And so you chose not to undergo fertility preservation, correct? I... So I, I ended up, um, I guess, continuing the story, I ended up saying no to going on hormone suppressing drugs. Um, I it was recommended that I would be on them for 10 years. And if that were the case, I would have. But I, the, the A, I remember my mom being on the same drug, which I just find crazy so many years ago, that they wanted me to be on. And I remember her being very sick from it. And I also, the percentage of difference. Um, you know, my survival rate's very high given everything happened. Um, and the percentage difference of if I were to go on tamoxifen versus if I did decide not to do 10 years of these hormone suppressing drugs was so small that for me, I decided to just take a chance. So after I was done, I was, I'm done now. But if I had decided to stay on tamoxifen, to do the tamoxifen, then yes, I would have done fertility treatment, but I didn't. So, so no, I didn't. <laughs> Tell me about a damn good life and why women's fertility is so important to you that have been affected by breast cancer. I felt very strongly about helping and giving back after my mom passed away. I would do a lot of like, you know, the Avon walk and the, all of those things, right? Raise money. And I, I, you know, I really wanted something that was more personal. So, so basically, you know, Victoria and Sarah had known each other um, prior and Victoria and I knew each other prior. It was her husband's 40th birthday, actually. And we were at a party and I sat down and Sarah said, I hadn't met Sarah yet. And Sarah, those of you that are listening, is our third partner who couldn't make it today. Um, and she's going through her own surrogacy journey currently, but is also obviously a breast cancer survivor, young, under 40 breast cancer survivor. Um so she sat down next to me and like immediately was like, uh, I'm not, you know, she was just coming back from chemo and didn't have much hair and was like, I'm not, you know, I'm not normally like this. I just had breast cancer. Da, 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 da. And I had just had my double mastectomy like a couple weeks before. And I was like, Oh my God, me too. And you know, I'm the non-emotional one of the three, I think. <laughs> and she immediately starts crying. She's like, Oh my God, you know, and so fast forward a couple of weeks later and I'm thinking about October because um, this is over the summer and I reached out to Sarah and was like, you know, you mentioned starting your own foundation that night. You know, where are you at with that? Um, 
I would like to do something in October, but I just can't find what it is that I want to do because, you know, I've done all the things that I mentioned before and it just doesn't feel personal to me. It's, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not, you know, was, I've done that and I wanted to do something different. So we got on the phone and she told me that her and Victoria had spoken previously about doing this, this charity because they are both affected, you know, personally by this with their own fertility. They can't, you know, no longer carry their own children and are going to have to have babies via surrogacy. Um, and I was like thinking like, yeah, I'll help you throw a party. I wasn't thinking I was gonna, like be a co-founder of the charity at the time. Two of them like call, like three-way called me and they're like, we're doing this charity together. Can you do it before Ezra's born? <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I have like 30 days to like figure this out with you guys. But um, the beauty of like our dynamic too, is like we all have like amazing different strengths and, um, it's been really fun to like work on this and give back. And I think just in addition to being able to like issue these grants, it's like the community that we're building is like super fun and positive. And we have like, we want to build this out to also be a lot of, a lot more of community and women supporting women. And um, you know, we're partnering with like other um, missions that are covering breast cancer and just like building that out, but just having like a really positive, fun, light spin on something that's like obviously life-changing and life-threatening, but um, to kind of offer that support. So we hope to kind of build out the community aspects a little bit more too over the years as we kind of grow. For me personally, it's a, it's just giving back to the breast cancer community. It's spreading the word about um, young people and what they go through because it's different for people, women in their twenties and thirties. And there's so many more repercussions than most people realize. Um, surrogacy doesn't have the best reputation in a lot of corners of the world in the country. Um, and people don't, you know, it's, it is one of those things that you can imagine that you get your diagnosis and then in the same vein, hopefully if your doctors are on top of it, you also get told that you can't carry your own children. So, you know, it's a big, it changes your life in so many ways. So it's not just advocacy, but it's also education and helping one person in a very tangible way. You know, not in this abstract kind of giving money to research or, you know, which is all great, but this is like, okay, our goal here is to help someone have a child. Yeah. So the mission of your, your, your nonprofit is to help a woman, at least one woman with their surrogacy journey from top to bottom, right? Yeah. So, um, a surrogate surrogacy is not covered by insurance in the United States. It's not even legal in all, all 50 States. Um, so it, it's $150,000 approximately. So the vast majority of the people that get diagnosed with breast cancer at a young age don't even go through their fertility treatments because it, they know that that's just a stretch and it's just not going to happen. Um, so, you know, we really just started thinking about all the underprivileged women out there that, you know, kind of get hit with the diagnosis and then get hit with, well, now you're not going to have children. I mean, obviously there's adoption and other ways. Right. All that's expensive, right? Yeah, it's true. true. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, that's the, we are, you know, top to bottom funding um, women's surrogacy journeys, young, young breast cancer survivors, surrogacy journeys. That's kind of the charity. That we, yeah. So it's been, it's been a wild ride. You know, we dumped, we jumped head in uh, feet first, whatever. Sorry. <laughs> whatever that saying is <laughs> all in I don't know no and we you know it's been a huge learning curve but it's been really interesting and fun and we are a 501c3 nonprofit um we have our whole team in place 
and our grant applications are actually um, for our first grant of $150,000 are live right now. Yeah. So tell me what like your ideal candidate would look like. Who are you looking for for this grant? Sure. I mean, it, we have, it was very hard to come up with like the credentials um, in terms of criteria because we'd love to be able to use grants um, to everyone. But the like high level between the ages of 30 and 42 um, U.S. citizen um, adjusted gross income, like household income of below 150K um, has a medical diagnosis of breast cancer is ideally like past treatment or like in, you know recovery remission, early stage remission, I guess, um, at a minimum. Um, we need written confirmation of like this being a medical necessity um, from an oncologist. I mean, a lot of these cancer diagnoses are hormone related, obviously. This is all hormone. So um, most doctors are comfortable with writing a letter saying that they highly recommend based on like recurrence odds and the type of cancer like makeup um, that they, sh- that, you know, this person should have a uh, surrogacy as an option if they want to uh, carry children or have children, um, have frozen embryos, ha- not have children for the early stages of our grants, um, issuing our grants. We really want to help people start their family with no children yet. Um, maybe that'll evolve over time. Um, Three of us. It's a lot of work. So right now we're have a very narrow kind of criteria, just because that's the <laughs> resources that we have are the three of us. So yeah. So, so ideally, you would want them to already have frozen embryos, and you're going to yeah. help with the surrogacy process, right? Yeah, because we're going to basically hand over like the resources that are going to support their journey. We have a dedicated. Um, uh, agency, Brownstone Surrogacy, um, they're an amazing team. We have legal counsel. So we pay, basically kind of package up the needs for surrogacy with the partners that we've aligned with and kind of help shepherd, you know, the process with our, our you know, existing um, partners and that are going to be able to support the surrogacy journey from like start to finish, which really starts with the agency um, and then obviously all the layers of legal. So we've kind of been really thoughtful of like, all of these different areas, but I think, um, you know, income is obviously a huge consideration and then cancer and, and where you are in your treatment and having that oncology recommendation, but also like first and foremost, like you have to like relate to us that like, you know, having a family is the biggest loss of this process. And like, that's what you want to do. Like, that's your dream. And we want to help people dream come true that, um, really like would literally, I don't know, live in debt for, the rest of your, their life to be able to start their family. Like those are the people that we want to help. Our applications are actually only up through next week. Um, they've been, yeah, for a little over a month. But, uh, keep in mind, this is also our first grant. So uh, we you know plan on many more to come. Yeah, we're going to, uh, you know, we will announce it hopefully by the end of this month. I, I like my goal is to get this podcast out by next week so that this could hopefully bring in a few more applicants. So keep that in mind. Okay. Also, <laughs> yeah. Like really... I said, this is only our first grant. Like hopefully, you know, it's, you know, again, we, there's only three of us and we also all have jobs and like our lives and stuff and, and we're brand new at this process. So um, we hope that with this first grant, um, you know, we worked a year and a half to raise all this money, um, find our partners, 
get our 501c3, you know, all of the things that it takes to do a nonprofit, plus everything else that's going on, including Lori and Sarah's own surrogacy journeys and, you know. And having a baby, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So all of those things that come with life. Um, But, you know, hopefully, you know, things like this podcast. And once we do have an actual grant recipient and we start putting it out there, we're actually going, doing this, right? It's not abstract. Like, like the money you're giving is going to help this person and this is why they need help and this is their story that will just grow from there organically and get more attention and more support in the community. I mean, we have so much support from our personal communities, but, you know, there's more that we could through like yeah, podcasts and surrogacy, you know, networks and whatever, you know, we can hopefully only grow from here and issue more and more grants and maybe grow to ovarian cancers or other type of cancers. I mean, how did you raise the $150,000 for this grant? Blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I figured. <laughs> and lots of parties. Parties, right? yeah. Literally, we would uh, just through events. Um, we had what, our first launch event was um, at the Rockaway Hotel in Rockaway Beach, um, which was great. We then had an event at Hero Beach Club, which is in Montauk. Um, and it was also COVID still. Um, we were trying to do all this stuff. So we kept trying to get one in the city, but we just haven't had a chance to just because, every, you know, Omicron and like, you know, whatever. So our next event's probably going to be in the city. But yeah, just through that and through donations through friends, we've had a couple like small donations from other breast cancer organizations. One of them is called Pink Aid and the other one is Women Talking Health, which we just got like yesterday. Victoria mentioned we've been trying to really like learn and lean on other breast cancer charities. So Chick Mission, Pink Aid, Chick Mission actually helps you freeze eggs when you go, when you get the cancer diagnosis. So it's very related and they're super um, established and been around so we've been really network networking within those communities as well. Victoria, how did you find your surrogate and then your, I guess, your second surrogate? Um, so through my agency, I worked with um, CSP. Um, they've been around for a while. Um, I interviewed like 20 agencies and ended up with them and they had an amazing vetting process. Um, I always say it's like similar to dating, like you're reading people's profiles, you're like, uh, you know, you don't like really talk to people because they really want you to be a little bit further along in your decision, just based on what like you see in your reading, um, to, you know, just manage everyone's like expectations. Um, but when I read Christina's profile. She was actually still in like screening and fully available. And like, I saw her pictures, I read her story and I was like, that's my girl. Like, but, and I like went into like, they like had given me access to like the girls that were screening and um, she was one of them. And I was like, don't get like, don't show her to anyone else. Like she's ours. So I had a conviction about her from the beginning. Um, spoke to her and like, you know, my husband and I just like, she just, it just drives so well. It was like super organic. Both wanted the same things out of like the experience. And like um, she was like super organized. I guess she just, she sold us on, you know, it was like love at first sight. So we were like done, it worked and she was amazing. And then we started this second, like we're, you know, want to have another child. So we were starting the process with our same agency and they're wonderful. And like, I just, for some reason, I'm like, 
I wonder if Kimberly would ever do this for us because Kimberly, her twin sister had actually been a surrogate prior. Like they're just an amazing family. And I had spent a lot of time with Kimberly when Ezra was born because, you know, she was there for her sister giving birth and, you know, they're a family. And we had gotten matched and she was an amazing person. We hadn't spoken to her. So I was like, I think the thing that's holding me back is I want to like ask Kimberly if she'll query for us. I'm like, worst thing she can say is no. So like 10 o'clock at night, randomly, I just like sent her this like long text. And I'm like, I know this is like crazy, but um, you know, would you ever consider this, you know, doing this for us? And like, we can go through the agency and everything. And um, yeah, she agreed. And we, together since so we're just starting the process this is like a lifetime movie of sorts yeah like you know we i got like amazing fox news coverage for the uh a damn good life and um i was like oh i hope we get in like another cool feature like you know who's worthy that like twins carried siblings and you know continued it we had visions of like holding ezra up like you know like the lion king (laughs) like the lion king yeah (laughs) Nah, Savenya, right? <laughs> this is what you could do. That's right. The poster child yeah. for uh, surrogacy. That's awesome. I know. If he was right now, I would, I would let you see him oh my God. or hear him. You would hear him. You definitely would hear him. If he was <laughs> I love that story. Um, a- advice to anyone who's going through fertility treatment or their own surrogacy journey? Who? Um, I mean, I would look at this as like a. Uh, what's the word going through it? Like, I mean, I also can only speak to it coming from a breast cancer um, diagnosis, not from like having fertility issues. Cause I've don't know what that is. I think that's a whole other type of, uh, you know, mindset and journey. And I've had very friends go through, you know, hard times with that. But I think from a breast cancer perspective, like it's a huge opportunity that you're given. Like, I think, you know, take it, even if you don't know what, is going to come out of like unexpected fertility preservation. I think it's like you are covered usually by your insurance. Like it is not hard. It's not going to be the hardest part of your cancer treatment is doing fertility. Like I would think it's probably the complete opposite, like take the shots, do it, like go head in and, and freeze your eggs. And it's the best insurance and relief that you'll have. Um, knowing that when you come out on the other side, you have that as an option. I think the options are, amazing. um, And then, you know, find doctors that are going to advocate for that. And if like you go somewhere and like family planning is important to you and like your doctor doesn't seem like, you know, that you have the right treatment plan for that or like it's too aggressive, like get another opinion. Like any doctor that's a good doctor is going to let you do that and like find out your options, especially if like fertility um, and family planning is important to you. Like advocate for yourself and like have support in those conversations with doctors because like, as you know, like if delivering that news, you're in shock and like people aren't thinking about a year and a half after cancer. They're thinking about like what's happening like right now and getting the cancer out of their body and not like a baby in three years. Also, like even if you don't know that you are looking for a family, like like Tori said, just to have that, that safety net, it's, you know, because when you're young, you don't always, not everyone is like dreams of being a mother right away, but you know. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Like I've spoken to some really young people that even don't even have partners and that's not even at their stage of life, like in their 20s. And it's so jarring to like be diagnosed with breast cancer, but then also have to make these decisions regarding fertility preservation when you don't, like you said, you don't have this in line. So, you know, making sure, like you said, your team is 
putting this forward because you might not want it right now, but 10 years from now, you might, your mind might change. And so I do think it's really, it should be one of the first conversations. And if your team is not talking about that, then yeah, get a second opinion and find another team. Cause it, especially for young women, this is a really important conversation. You really only have a short period of time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I I was the best thing I always said. I'm like, Oh, I wish I just did this like 10 years ago. My husband and I probably would have been like, and I wouldn't have put like a gun to his head when it came down to it. <laughs> right. You're really forced to do it at that yeah, point. It's like, it's now or never, dude. Um, but yeah. And I think like in terms of the process of surrogacy, like I, Sarah said it really well the other day um, in another talk that she was doing, like it's not a straight line. It's like, it goes in so many different ways. Like, I, you know, even in this next journey, there's like some things have come up that like didn't happen the last time and like having patience and like, understanding and and just like know you're going to get there and ask the questions that you need to ask and like you're going to have to push this along like you literally are going to have a baby without having to do like that physical work in a way because like you're determined you're like planning it's like it's it's a lot and you have to just kind of put your like in terms of like focus like it's all going to work out these people that are going to help you along the way are like incredible in terms of the agency and then surrogate is like wants to help you so much and wants to help you start your family and like have faith in that. And, you know, it comes into place, but it's not, it's not straightforward. There's no like Bible that like you, you know, follow to get through it, but um, it's obviously super rewarding. And these, these women who do this for families that are incredible. Um, so just know what you want. Don't be afraid to ask and be transparent about the relationship you want to have with your surrogate. And, you know, they're going to be amenable to that. And you're going to know it's like very instinctual of like, okay, this person's going to carry and be honest with yourself, like what you need and what you want. And I think the rest like kind of falls into place. How does somebody become a surrogate? Like if somebody that is not affected by breast cancer wants to become a surrogate, what's that? Is like, is there a way to do that? Yeah. So you apply, um, through, there's so many amazing agencies. Um, uh, but like the standard process is you would do like an application through their website um, and they do like pretty intense, like psychological screening, they do medical clearance, um, they vet you, they, you know, go through an entire like onboarding process. Um, and a lot of this is like, why do you want to do it? Like, all like, this is such like altruistic work, like, of course, you're getting paid. But at the same time, like they're doing this because there's something in their heart that like, connects them to this process of helping, a, you know, a woman or a family, um, uh, you know, bring a, their child into the world. So it's, it's a little kind of spiritual in that, like, and, and that has to be like conveyed in this application process. Like the people who are vetting most surrogates are like understanding their kind of intention. And sometimes like, you know, after they carry, they're like, um, they're able to like do an amazing like remodel in their house with their money, or they're like putting kids towards co- like college or, you know, like, they use their money in the way that it's, it's helps their family, but ultimately the goal and their intention is like to help. And that's like basically what um, they kind of with their application convey. Um, and there's, I mean, okay, again, there's like amazing agencies. I was going to say our agency that we're partners with Brownstone surrogacy, it's based in New York city. If anyone's interested, like go check out their Instagram. They have a lot of international videos um, about that question, about all different like aspects of surrogacy and surround surrogacy. And, you know, they do cute little like TikTok kind of questionnaire, some of their surrogates on there. So it's like interesting if you're interested in anything that has to do with it, 
recommend following them. I love that. I would consider being a surrogate if I was younger. I'm 41, but I heard there's a top age limit of, what is it, 35? Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, what was it like watching your mom battling breast cancer and then battling it yourself? Uh, intense. <laughs> intense. Yeah, I know. I can only imagine, right? Uh, it, was, it was hard. I think for, it, uh, for me, I... It was, I was harder for me because of what I felt that my family would be feeling like my dad, my brother, my aunt and everyone like that. I was more worried about them be, especially also because they were far away and I couldn't really have people around because, you know, it, 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 yeah, because COVID, um, <laughs> another layer to the fun. Um, so, you know, it was, it was emotional, I think more than anything else, like, Physically, the, the, the surgeries and everything and the back and forth, I was all, uh, very tough, I think, but I wasn't. I, I think I only had about a week where I was like, oh, this is going to happen. I know, I know this is how, you know, like happened to my mom today. The same thing's going to happen to me. But a lot like the surrogacy journey, there is no two that are the same. And I think that's also really important to keep in mind. Like you can't, you can really truly cannot compare what you're going through to anyone else in terms of like the linearness of the treatments and the side effects and the, and the, the way it came about. It, it's really very personal. Um, you know, my mom was stage four and I was like barely stage one. So it was a very different process. Um, but it did bring back like a lot of like memories and emotions and like, you know, things that kind of like vary because my mom died when I was 21 and, you know, I got diagnosed at 36 um, so I, I, I was really, sh I mean, I was shocked that I was so young, um, and then even more shocked that I didn't have the gene. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was, it, it was hard. It was, um, I think it was just emotionally very hard. Well, I know your mom is looking down on you. So proud of what you've done with, you know, for the breast cancer community, um, and I just want to reiterate what you said is that every breast cancer is different. Like it should be, it's really an umbrella of thousands of diseases and, you know, each person, each treatment is personalized and, tr and treatment has come so far when your mom was diagnosed. So thankfully, uh, but there's a lot of, you know, stability in that. Before I let you ladies go, any met, what's your message for the young breast cancer community that might be listening? Um, I, you know, I would just say it's really, um, amazing the support network has out that's out there that if you look for it um whether it be friends and family but even just like online there's like i've discovered so many like pages like yours and just you know, instagram accounts and like you know all of those things podcasts um i think you know you're not alone and unfortunately i think it's becoming more and more prevalent you're definitely certainly not alone so to ask for help and lean on your friends and people in your community, because um, it is out there, even if you're not aware of it. I mean, you can look for it. I mean, all the other charities that we deal with, um, that we kind of have been networking with and becoming familiar with, do so many amazing things. So, um, you know, ask for help. It's, it's there. It's, sometimes you have to look for it, but it's certainly there. Yes. Victoria, any advice for the young community? Um, yeah. I mean, I think as hard as it is while you're in it, like stay as positive. Like you're, it's really a mind over matter experience, or at least it was for me. Um, your body is resilient. You are resilient. Um, and I think like 
ask for support when you need it. And it's the time that I feel like it was really the only time in my life that like, I just did whatever the F I wanted to do. And like, I felt good about that. Cause like of my personality and you grow so much and like really use this time to be selfish, take care of yourself. Like that's all that matters. And everyone understands that like, no, everyone that reaches out and get, offers their advice. It's because they love you and care. And like you decide what you want to do and who you want to talk to and, you know, kind of create, you're going to have another chance at your life and, you know, use this time to like really just take care of yourself and leverage the people around you that you love the most that can support you. And like our community as well, like we're always here, like Sarah, Annie and I are like always want to talk support other women. So if we can, if there's something that you want to talk through, like always reach out. Um, I'm sure we'll give you our emails and stuff. Yeah. Everything's on our website. Yeah. Come to our events. Like we're happy to support. I love it. I want to end with Sarah's personal motto. So she said, when walking down a road you didn't expect to be on, you have two choices to walk down it in fear, downtrodden and heavy, or to strut down it, looking around at all the joy amongst the unknown. Choose the latter. Yep. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. It was great to chat. And we're really happy to be part of your community too. Thanks for your work. Thank you so much, ladies. Take care. Thank you for you all you do. Thanks. Bye. You can learn more about this incredible organization at adamgoodlife.org where you can apply for the surrogacy journey or support this amazing organization. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or learned something new, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and help spread the word. If you tell me you did, I'll give you a big virtual smoocheroo. And of course, make sure you follow me across all social media platforms at The Booby Docs for more of the breast information. And a huge thank you to my podcast producer, Christian Cuveta, an amazing medical student who also wrote and produced the music for this show. Take it away, Christian. Christian.